This episode of I Am Bio is brought to you by Fujifilm Diocin Biotechnologies. At this point, it's almost an understatement to say that COVID changed our lives. From the way we interact with each other and think about disease, to how we have adapted to technology and juggled childcare and work responsibilities, this last year and a half has brought a whole new meaning to multitasking and the way we lead our lives. The proportion of Americans working from home full-time has gone from one in 50 to more than one in three. So will you please unmute your microphones? Can we get Ian's audio? Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to... Uh, uh. Take we're trying to, we're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. <laughs> yeah, I know. My dogs are so happy right now. I take them on like 12 walks a day. This rare global event turned our personal lives upside down. But in certain parts of the world, we're on the cusp of getting back to normal. And we have many innovative and collaborative biotech companies to thank. They have changed the course of history, and we are grateful. It is also true that this extraordinary infectious disease changed the industry as well. And that's what we're talking about today. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. Biotechnology, an industry uniquely positioned to guide the world through a global viral pandemic, was both massively influenced by and influential in the pandemic, in both its emergence and the recovery. We spoke to experts who have examined how the biotech industry addressed coronavirus and worked to solve a daunting challenge. Starting with our first guest. Greetings. I'm Dr. William Karish. I'm the Executive Vice President for Health and Policy at EcoHealth Alliance. Dr. Karish is an expert on animal health who explained to us how the ongoing work of biotech scientists led to the quick identification of the virus. Well, in the case of uh, the SARS coronavirus 2, or what we call the disease in humans is COVID-19, I'm not sure we've actually found the original source, but we do have a lot of clues about where it came from. And the reason we were able to do that so quickly is because the years of work that have been uh, invested and spent in looking at the diversity of viruses that are circulating in nature. So over the past 10 years, and it has a lot to do uh, with the amazing increases in biotechnology particularly with genomics, to be able to collect samples from wild animals around the world, do genetic sequencing from those samples, and deposit those in databases such as uh, GenBank or other open source areas where people put in their genetic findings from animals, people, viruses, bacteria. So in this case, as the coronavirus uh, got established in people, it was very easy to look in these genetic databases and see that they're very closely related to bats. So we're highly suspicious 
And we're actually pretty confident that this virus falls into that group of bat coronaviruses, and there's hundreds of them. Those are all publicly available. You can see the genomic sequences there that it fit into that group, though no one has found the exact match of this COVID-19 virus is SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we still don't know exactly how, you know, which animal it came from or if it changed or maybe even developed in humans into its current form, um, because the most closely related viruses that we found in animals and particularly in bats are 94, 90%, 92%, 94% similar. It points towards that group of coronaviruses that naturally circulate in bats in Asia, particularly in Asia, but we haven't found the exact match. No one's found the exact match yet. We've known for hundreds of years that animals can give diseases to humans and vice versa. We spoke to Dr. Koresh about the importance of a concept called One Health in strengthening our defenses against diseases on both sides of this dynamic. The real basics behind the One Health concept is that the health of people, the health of animals, the health of our environment are inextricably linked. So changes in one affect the others. It's like, you know, when a butterfly flaps its wings. And the really the One Health is this connection between us and animals and the environment. Um, and in that world of the environment, we're talking about our air and our water and, and plants and other living organisms. Uh, and how we are all linked, the health of one is linked to others. It's gotten a lot of attention in the fact that more recently, because of emerging infectious diseases, these new diseases that keep popping up, you know, HIV, AIDS, the first SARS coronavirus, Ebola, as we've started to look at those more carefully, we've seen that they have their roots or origins in animals so that's a very simple way to explain it, that we share infectious diseases. But beyond that, too, uh, the activities of what people have been doing in the last few hundred years as the human population is getting approaching 8 billion people, we've made big changes on the planet. And of course, that affects our health because it affects our, the quality of water. We're seeing ocean acidification, uh, the effects of climate change, and those all come back to affecting our health. So One Health brings that together rather than saying that human health and animal health, environmental health are separate and can be addressed separately. They can't be addressed separately because they interact so much. One Health was a breakthrough concept for a world in which interspecies disease sharing was evident. But there still remained silos between animal health, environmental health, and human health sectors. These silos are finally cracking, which bodes well in helping to protect against inevitable future disease outbreaks. Yes. So since I've coined the term One Health, it's been almost 20 years. I think there's just um, the awareness of the need to work together across different sectors, the animal health sector, the environmental health sector, the education sector, that we all have a stake in health, that it's an all of a society approach. I think that's really helped with um, addressing this pandemic because we've been kind of practicing that over the last few decades as these different emerging diseases come out about the need for rapid and quick collaboration. So in the case of COVID-19, that bridging the gap between uh, viruses found in wild animals and the viruses found in people 
is just eat that uh, that gap was much smaller because people are working together more across disciplines. They're not so separated in their silos and trying to figure it out. Had we, you know, you could have struggled quite a many few years to to find out the source of COVID-19 if you just ignored all the the work that's been done in the animal world. Dr. Koresh's last point about collaboration is something we at Bio have been focused on for the past 18 months. We can't stress enough how it took and will continue to take organizations from all across the health industry to come together to defeat this virus. The unprecedented collaboration that we saw of government, science, and business communities led to progress and innovation at a speed we had never witnessed before. I mean, companies committed 110% of their resources to to the challenge that was before them. They had to shift resources, um, but they were committed to science and and frankly prepared for failure. They also had to, in, in the midst of problem solving, immediately sort of turn towards building really important partnerships the need to partner on things such as as, uh, manufacturing needs and and projecting what will be required to scale up, to basically immunize, to vaccinate the world, you know, was was a real big challenge. But again, everybody rose to that as quick as possible, as far as I can understand it. I'm not sure how it could have gone any faster, those those types of collaborations that were just built uh, as needed in the time frame that was necessary. This is Carter Esham. Carter Esham, Chief Scientific Officer of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. In that role, I work with our science and regulatory teams, our infectious disease team, our industry analysis team, and our emerging companies, uh, and our food, our agriculture and environmental teams. In our conversation, Carter dove into the extraordinary drive and determination that led to a remarkable number of clinical developments to treat and or prevent COVID. Companies jumped in because they wanted to help solve the global crisis, even though most of the clinical development programs may fail. I mean, by our count, at one point, there was as many as 832 unique compounds in development that were targeting COVID, over about 225 vaccines, 240 antivirals, and 367 treatment programs. And so, you know, you take all of that in and then you really look at the early treatment studies, you know, very few products were were ultimately successful. And some of the vaccine programs really had to pivot their strategies, you know, and again, that was, this was all done at risk. No one was sure if any of this would even work out half as well as it did. But the companies rose to the challenge because that's what they do. They they develop medicines to, to help patients. So I think that's why they rose to the challenge. It was their challenge to meet and they did so. We talked to one of these companies that pivoted when the pandemic hit. Hi, I'm Aaron Sato. I'm the CSO of Twist Bioscience. I'm also the head of the Twist Biopharma Vertical at Twist, which is a group that utilizes all of Twist's amazing products for antibody discovery and antibody optimization. Twist Bioscience was founded in 2013, long before COVID-19. However, in the wake of it, their technology platform allowed them to start supplying researchers at other biotech companies with synthetic versions of the virus. This eliminated the need for scientists to handle live and potentially dangerous pathogens. We also saw um, as uh, the sequence of COVID came out, we were able to utilize uh, many of the pieces of the virus to create our own synthetic RNA controls 
which are basically kind of broken down pieces of the virus that allows um, others to develop RNA and DNA-based tests uh, for the virus. And so those are really key for monitoring um, the day-to-day -day surveillance of the virus, as well as later on, we were actually able to make similar controls for many of the variants of SARS-CoV-2 as well. But TWIST's work didn't stop there. And we actually have now, as well as SARS-CoV-2, we also have a whole panel of other controls for other respiratory viruses. And so we actually have up to 18 different controls for COVID as well as other respiratory viruses. And then on also in the whole infectious disease space, we also pivoted as well in the biopharma group to actually um, discover many a whole host of antibodies as well to SARS-CoV-2. That enabled us to um, work on some diagnostic applications as well as some therapeutic applications utilizing those antibodies. And today we've actually you know, we've done many webinars to really show the power of our antibodies, particularly in, to be used as therapeutics um, against SARS-CoV-2. And hopefully we'll be publishing some papers uh, on that topic as well. Clearly, the amazing scientists, researchers, leaders, and others in the biotech ecosystem really challenged the trajectory of the virus. That said, we have to admit that the pandemic had an effect on us, too. We'll talk about that more after the break. This episode is brought to you by Fujifilm Biosynth Biotechnologies. The work they do at Fujifilm Diosynth Biotechnologies has never been more important. They are growing their locations, capabilities, and their teams. Fujifilm Diosynth Biotechnologies is looking for passionate, mission-driven people who want to make a real difference in advancing tomorrow's medicine. Choose a job that propels you, inspires you, and fulfills you by applying at fdbcareers.com. For years, the biopharmaceutical industry was ranked among the least well-regarded sectors in the economy. A 2019 Gallup poll of U.S. public opinion placed the pharma industry at the bottom of a list of 25 prominent industries. 58% of those polled had a negative view of the sector. As biopharma companies swooped in to first provide treatments and then vaccines, things started to change. This is Ron Fauché. I am a principal at Certus Research Insights, and we do survey research and polling, and I'm also a news analysis on and work with a number of news organizations. National polling is showing that public trust of biopharma companies has increased over the past year, and that's, of course, due to the pandemic. Uh, and I think the extraordinary effort made to develop safe and effective vaccines. One survey reported shows that positive ratings of pharmaceutical companies went from 32% in early 2020 to 62% in early 2021. That's a really big jump. When you look at internal survey numbers, we find that the reasons for this change include efforts to develop a vaccine, find treatments, and create diagnostic tests. Polling also found that urban dwellers 
Gen X and millennial audiences had the biggest increase in their positive view of biopharma companies compared to when the pandemic began. And it makes sense. I too joined the chorus sharing the incredible work of our companies on nightly news, radio talk shows, and in op-eds, highlighting companies like Twist. Even the, the COVID work that we did in the biopharma team, but we weren't getting paid for that. We just did that because we found that it was really important to do. That's Aaron Sato again. I think we are eventually going to realize some value from it, but it wasn't like we had to do it in terms of to generate more revenue. We just really felt that it was a key initiative to do. And then on the controls, you know, we initially just started out that process as well, just to address a need um, in the industry. But it's also becoming a really fruitful area for us down the road as well for generating other products. So what I find within the R&D group at Twist is we continue to be innovative in the DNA space. We oftentimes do it not quite knowing what the product will be initially, but eventually we find a really good use for it and a really good need for it in the industry to really help address uh, specific gaps that others have. As companies were working together using their own finances to develop important tools for one another, the public seemed insatiable in their desire to understand the background of the disease, drug development, and potential treatments, as Dr. Koresh of EcoHealth Alliance explains. Two years ago, if I would talk to my friends or my family and I would talk about you know, oh, we're doing some antibody tests to detect coronaviruses in bats. They would just look at me funny. Now, almost everybody knows what an antibody test is versus an antigen or a PCR test. We use PCR for years. You know, we're doing <clears throat> genetic sequencing for years. And I don't think the general public, you know, really comes quite into understanding that or what it meant or why it was useful. Now, with the pandemic, I think everybody seems to be, that seems to be a term that almost everyone uh, understands. So there's a general uh, raising of awareness and education, certainly our work at EcoHealth Alliance. We've been focusing on uh, the emergence of infectious diseases for a long time. So we are having more and more people come to us and asking for advice or guidance or if they can be involved in some of the work. The pandemic also provided an important check on our industry, highlighting something we've been working on but needed to speed up. So there were a lot of lessons learned, and, and so much so that that is now sort of an officially uh, a, a normal turn of phrase that I think I'm in a discussion at least once daily talking about how to advance lessons learned. But I'll highlight a few. This is BIO's chief science officer, Carter Esham, again. There was the deployment of, of several tools and approaches to clinical trials that were sort of deployed out of necessity, but we do think could work to alleviate burdens on patients and help support a more equitable clinical development ecosystem moving forward. For example, you know, the way that the trials had to be brought to the patients. We saw in the vaccine trials, you know, the use of what we call decentralized trials, but it's really talking about going to where the patients are and enabling them to participate in a clinical trial. We also saw the use of digital technologies that, that allow patients to connect with their doctor from home. Uh, it enables them to submit some outcomes data from their home. It, uh, there was a lot of work about how to enable the patients to receive their medicines in their homes and so many other approaches that, that, that could make clinical trials 
more manageable for more patients are definitely practices we want to see become more standard. Carter then hit on her second point. We also learned a lot about how to use real-world evidence, real-world data to better understand outcomes of patients. And that was really crucial during the pandemic to make sure that like in as fast a time as possible, we were best able to assess how patients were responding to, to various treatments uh, and, and as close to real time as, as, as feasible. And that was really important in managing through the pandemic. And lastly. And lastly, you know, I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't just reflect upon the fact that we also had the opportunity to engage the world about how clinical development works. I wonder if there was a poll that said how many people knew what a clinical trial was before the pandemic and what that would look like after. And so I think that it was, you know, maybe a silver lining to what was otherwise a, a huge tragedy is really just engaging with the world about how we develop medicines. I think that was a real opportunity. These incredible ways that the pandemic improved our ability to help people is not a temporary fix just to address the crisis, as Carter explains. Like all of us in many ways, you know, right, we're, we're coming out of this pandemic and forging a new normal. I think all of us in our everyday lives are forging a new normal. And I think the same goes for advancing how we think about clinical development. And, and I do believe that we are redefining that clinical development paradigm. That is the opportunity. And I firmly believe we will take that opportunity and prove how we conduct clinical research and development in ways that will be even more informative, in ways that will enable more knowledge of and access to the clinical development ecosystem in many other exciting advances that I think are ultimately just going to improve the system overall and improve our ability to do research better, improve our ability to understand health outcomes across all patients. So I do not think it's a blip. I do think that we are charting a new path. And that's the perfect note to end on. Biotechnology changed our understanding of COVID and lessened the strength of its impact. Meanwhile, this tragedy pushed the boundaries of our industry and helped strengthen the relationship we have with the public. Thank you so much to all of today's guests. And on our next episode, we will talk about the coming United Nations Food Summit and the role biotechnology will play in the Sustainable Development Goals. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and or review. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at I Am Biotech. And subscribe to Good Day Bio at bio.org slash goodday. This episode was developed by executive producer Teresa Brady and producers Connor McCoy, Cornelia Poku, and Marilyn Sawyer. It was mixed by Jess Fenton. Theme music created by Luke Smith and Sam Brady.